Holy Spirit of Man. Hello everyone and welcome to Athen Rye. Cold February night. I hope you're all keeping well. The lockdown isn't bearing too much down on you. Just a few reflections I wanted to pass on to you this evening on those readings today in Mass. Now, I have to tell you straight out that uh, I found the gospel hard going in the beginning when I was trying to put a sermon together. Not because there isn't richness there, because there is, as we'll see, but more because we've been dealing with very similar sort of material for the consecutive readings from Mark in the last few Sundays. The first half of Mark is very taken up, very dominated by the miracles and the great deeds of Jesus Christ. The first half, less so in the second half. And it's a gospel, as I've said before, of action. So again, you know, you have the caiuthus and immediately, suddenly, straight away, and so on. You have straight away again there today in the gospel. But the more I thought about it, I was inclined to repent of my frustration. Because actually, an image of Christ, an articulation of his nature and mission, and you remember, I think I quoted it to you before, you remember Eliot's phrase, T.S. Eliot, wearing his critic's hat, not his poet's hat. He described all poetry as a series of raids on the inarticulate. It's an absolutely wonderful line. It's a tremendously powerful and precise line. And I suppose that's what I'm doing. I'm no T.S. Eliot. But I'm trying to raid the inarticulate. As if you believe the commentators, there's no reason not to, we see Christ in this part of Mark's gospel. We see him attacking and defeating and despoiling the kingdom of Satan. He's driving the devils before him. Caiuthus, caiuthus, caiuthus. Bang, bang, bang. And again and immediately and again. And so he goes on. Well, it doesn't mean and again. It means immediately, suddenly. And he goes on. He goes on. And it's a gospel of action. It's a gospel of attack and conquest. And he drives the devils out and claims people back for God. I was very struck by this. Now, this has come up before. We talked about it, about the exorcisms and all the rest of it. But I was very struck in this reading by Jesus the healer. Therapeuo, I heal. The Greek there is therapeuan, to heal. There's a nice play here because, you know, translation is a tricky business. And you have to take in all sorts of context and cultural assumptions and everything. In our English-speaking world, a physician is formally addressed as doctor, although they do not necessarily possess a doctorate. They may be traditionally, in the English-speaking world, a registered practitioner of medicine addressed as doctor, politely. Some of them do possess doctorates of medicine, others don't. But they get the title. Just as an aside, uh, consultants don't, for the historic reason that mainly surgeons in the past were really just butchers. The local barber often just doubled up as a surgeon. It was just a hack and chop and sew job, really. You know, the old tongue in the mouth and so on. Slug of brandy and get started. And a pretty grim business. But as surgery developed, it became much more prestigious as a profession. But still surgeons to this day are not addressed as doctor, but as Mr. or Mrs. Interesting one. So I suppose just as, as we weren't addressed as father, diocesan priest, we were called Mr. Or in Italy or Spain, Don. Or in France, Monsieur l'Abbé. It was the religious who were called father. They were more prestigious, the better educated often, and the people probably liked them better in many ways, you know. Doctor. I mean, the very name conjures up healing. 
and there is nothing more magnificent than to be healed. You see, you don't appreciate health until you lose it. You don't appreciate the healer until you need him. Don't appreciate the doctor or nurse until you need them. I know this from experience. And then it's a beautiful sight to look down at the foot of the bed and see your saviour. At the risk of blasphemy here, your redeemer. Well, it's not blasphemy because I'll explain how they're connected to see your healer. And here we see Jesus move among these poor people, these people who have so many problems, who have so many difficulties, and who are trying to obey the law of God. Do you see the way they bring their sick to him after sunset, the poor devil? After sunset, because the Sabbath ends at sunset on Saturday, begins at sunset on Friday. Do you remember from the Passion that will come later, from the Passion when the Jews wanted to make sure the bodies were taken down off the crosses before the Sabbath would have begun? They didn't want the Sabbath desecrated. And so the Sabbath is over, sunset on Saturday, and now they can bring their dead. They can do the work, or not their dead, they're sick. They can do that work. They bring them to Jesus for them to be healed. And he moves among them, healing and casting out demons. Now I can just see you raising your well-bred and well-educated eyebrow at this casting out of demons and healing Simon's mother's fever and all the rest of it. And Oh, well, the ancient peoples used to confuse physical maladies with demonic oppression or possession. This is common to the ancient peoples. You see this in the scriptures. And that's true. But the ancient peoples were just ancient. They weren't quite as advanced as us in terms of technology. They weren't at all as advanced. They weren't as advanced in medicine. But that doesn't mean that they were stupid. And it doesn't mean that they had no medicine. Because actually they did have medicine. The Jews, first of all, would have had their own wisdom. And we know that they were a clever and sophisticated people for hundreds of years before that. They were surrounded by immensely sophisticated and cosmopolitan cultures and were exposed to them, to Babylon in the captivity. They were exposed to Egypt. They were right beside these great cultures. And for 200 years before the coming of our Lord, the Jews had been very radically Hellenized, certainly in the cities and among what we would now call the intelligentsia. The Jews had medicine. They had medicine then, just not as good as ours. And we can see there clearly in the Gospel, I mean, in fairness, the inspired text clearly makes a distinction. Where do we see where it is there? Um, yeah. He cured many who were suffering from diseases of one kind or another. He also cast out many devils. You hear this? The distinction is made clear. They're not stupid. The distinction is made clear. Now, it is true that they regarded all physical malady as having spiritual significance and as of really being a foretaste and experience of death and therefore could make the person unclean, literally irregular, out of shape. I'm thinking of Yeats' line, all out of shape from toe to top. Out of shape. It is true that they did believe that, but were they wrong about that? Now here's the question. Here's what was coming to me today. Were they wrong about that? I mean, the Jews had a much deeper sense of the unity of body and soul, whereas in Greek thought you have that Certainly, you know, the platonic division, if you like, the dualism, the duality. What affects your body affects your mind and your spirit. What's happening in the mind affects the body. I've seen people pine away to death after the death of a spouse. I've seen people who are very ill, who are suffering constant pain, age, and lose their morale completely. The interplay of mind and body are very mysterious, let alone the interplay of the soul with all the rest. 
No, no, no. These things are intertwined. And exorcists will tell us that most of the people who come to them, they send on for counselling their psychological problems, which means, of course, that even to do that, the exorcist must be a person of quite exceptional education and training to be able to discern that. But some are not. Some are demonically possessed. And that demonic possession will present in terms of physical malady as well. I see Jesus there as Dr. Magnificus, as the magnificent doctor. I see him as doctor in the sense of the Latin term meaning of the word is teacher. The title doctor originated sometime around the beginning of the university system in that great burst of energy that happened apparently worldwide, but certainly in Europe and in the church in the oh, 12th and 13th centuries. I think the universities of Bologna and Paris, you can check that all that out for yourself, you know. It means teacher, and it's the black belt of academic grades. You've got bachelor, master, or licentiatus, license holder, in the sense that it gives you a license to teach at third level at university, and then doctor, and doctor is above all. In, in our system, they wear red academic gowns. They're very grand. A doctor is quite hard to get. You have to submit a very serious original study in great detail of some point of investigation in your field. But a doctor is also a physician, as I said. Actually, in Italy, a doctor can also be an engineer. They address engineers as doctor traditionally. I see him as teacher and healer combined. Do you know that when the Pope is blessing people in St. Peter's Square, surgeons can push themselves to the front, Catholic surgeons, and if they speak to the Swiss guards or if they speak to the security people or to the Monsignor who's there in charge of it, they'll be moved to the front so they can have their hands blessed. It's a tradition. The Pope will bless their hands because their hands are holy, because their hands are the hands of a healer, analogous to the hands of a priest. Not the same, but it is analogous. And so he'll bless their hands and kiss their hands the hands of a healer. A surgeon who cures your back and after years of pain, you can walk without pain, you can sit without pain, you can sleep at night and have a good sleep at night without pain, without waking up. That surgeon is a face of Christ, even if he's a non-believer. That doesn't affect his own personal salvation, but it certainly affects the way you see him. There is something blessed and holy in what he does. And here's the clinch. There is something evil in what afflicted you. And the church believes that not all evil is moral. Evil can be, as they say, as modern moral theologians say, it can be ontic evil. It can be objective evil in itself, like a falling tree hitting a man or lightning hitting somebody. Like I've heard of people I knew being killed by lightning or narrowly escaping being killed by lightning. I've heard of it. And generally there would be no agency in that like. There'd be no human agency. But there will be an evil. The evil of deprivation of health and life, the destruction of property, the destruction of good things. That is an evil. And we are subject to this. The sin of Adam, and we, you know, another time we go into the theology of all of that. We are subject to death. We are subject to sin, subject to temptation. The old Adam has been cured in baptism, but he stays in the long grass of our psyche and our soul, chewing on an old bone and waiting for us to slip up. Banished and resenting his banishment. 
as the devil resents his banishment and the fallen angel. And so, yes, people have psychological problems. People have psychological problems that are neither demonic possession or demonic oppression and yet still are in evil. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he moves through them. The perfect physician, the perfect teacher all rolled into one. Dr. Magnificus, magnificent doctor. And he moves through them. Not the red robes of the doctor, but the seamless garment, the seamless garment of the priesthood. He moves through them, healing them body and soul. Because is this such a mystery? Because people have stuff wrong with them. People have tough lives. People suffer. People get hurt. Their bodies get hurt. Their hearts get broken. They're betrayed. They're let down. They tragically lose a partner. People suffer and need to be healed. And I need to be healed. And you need to be healed. So don't sit back feeling superior to me. I'm just saying that. I'm a broken person. All right, I had a stroke two years ago. You know, that's... I better stop going on about that because a few of us, we used to laugh about a friend we had and everything was before his operation and after his operation. It was like the flood. Anything, everything was antediluvian and, and post-diluvian, like, you know. It was before and after the operation, okay? So I, I, I better stop going banging on about the stroke. But I mean, I needed to be healed there and I was grateful for my, my nurses and my doctors. I was grateful for them. And you need to be healed. And there are some of you listening to me there of all sorts of secret hurts and worries. There's all sorts of suffering in the world. People get disappointed in love or they're betrayed. Or here, listen to this. They betray others. They betray others and then they suffer because it's a terrible thing to suddenly discover that you who felt that you were a good person all along, which you are basically, suddenly you find yourself on the dark side, as Star Wars character would say. You find yourself on the wrong side of maybe not the civil law, but the moral law. There's a lot of suffering out there. There are people getting milled out there, just milled by life, and they need to be healed. It's nearly impossible to find God. I've talked about this. It's nearly impossible to find him without the wound. It's through the wound he lent her in. But you need him to heal the wound. He doesn't tear it open further. You need him to heal the wound. So I'm praying here this evening that this Christ, to whom the people bring their sick after sunset, those poor people who have so many problems, I'm praying that he comes into your life and into mine and that he heals us body and soul. You know, he heals us body and soul. And that we go away and sin no more. <sighs> Fat chance. God forgive me, but Lord, we are some crowd. We are some crowd. I don't know how he puts up with us. He's a martyr to us, literally. We killed him. He's a martyr to us. We need the healer, and yet we kill the healer. We're like those Egypts who assault nurses and doctors in accident and emergency at night, go in with a feed of drink on them and assault the nurse who's trying to help them. I know a nurse who's assaulted, or assault the doctor. That's what we're at. We're like the guy in the burning building fighting off the firemen, and we so need that. We so need somebody to take our spiritual and physical and mental pulse to diagnose kindly and lovingly and to cure. 
That's what we need from Christ. The ultimate malady is death. And I'm telling you, if you ever think that the scriptures have nothing to say to you, because one of the things I worry about most of all, again, I'm hammering on, chewing on an old bone here. I'm hammering on an old theme. This thing of the wooden language, the words that stop meaning things because they keep getting repeated. Always a danger, hugely, with ritual words. We use the same phrases. I remember he was a well-known poet at the time. It was about 30 years ago on RTE in the days when priests still used to be invited onto panels to discuss serious subjects. And the priest referred to the fullness of life in Christ. Could have been a bishop, maybe. And the poet attacked him. And he said, what do you mean, he said, the fullness of life in Christ? Like, what does that mean? And he was so rude that the priest was, you know, didn't handle it particularly well. But like, in a way, I could... I could see what the poet was getting upset about, is that people suffer so much. And priests, like, like any professionals in this sense, because the priesthood is not a profession, but like any professionals in this sense, priests just kind of say the things, they write the prescriptions that have always worked, they say the things, they say them again, they keep saying them. But you see, you have to suffer before you have the right to say them. And even then you couldn't say them but for his suffering. Our priesthood is only worth a damn because of him. We get our priesthood from him. It's only the crucified who can talk like this. It's only the one dragging his cross with him who can heal others. So maybe the poet had a point. Because poets go through hell like trying to raid the inarticulate. Trying to somehow put a fleeting shape, like a child building sandcastles at the beach and the tide comes in and washes it away, somehow trying to make a fleeting attempt to articulate, as Yeats said, sweet sounds together. As the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, to beat on the cloud of unknowing, the ultimate stage of contemplation, to just beat on him, like a child beats on his father. Pick me up. That's the secret of Christianity. That's the secret of the faith, is you have to be willing. Like, you remember that woman who grabs at his clothes as he passes and he says, who touched me, I felt the power come out of me. That's us. As the doctor passes our bed, we grab at his white coat, at his sacred hands, at the hands of the healer, and we beg to be healed. And we are so vulnerable in our suffering. Listen, you ever doubt that the scriptures can't speak to you? You think it's a wooden tongue? You think it's, you know, it's all been said before and you're sick of it? A parishioner said this to me. He said this to me only a few months ago. He said, it's all been said before. I'm sick of listening to it. It's all been said before. And I can see where he's coming from, you know? I mean, us priests, like, you know, a priest is a failure by definition. He's an imposter by definition, a con man by definition, a chancer by definition. Because you are alter Christus, you're another Christ. You're an icon of Jesus Christ. The only perfect man who has ever lived. The son of God, God, the third. I mean, how do you do that? How do you even begin to do that? You do it by screwing it up. Forgive my bluntness. You do it by making a pig's breakfast of it. You do it by keep making a pig's breakfast of it and hoping that you get it better and get it more right. A priest is by definition a failure. All we can manage is to fail well. Who can articulate God fully? You would explode. 
It said, I think, uh, Father Willie Doyle, that uh, heroic chaplain in the First World War, the Jesuit chaplain, the cause for canonization wasn't pursued because they discovered in his spiritual practices that he had, uh, I think on one occasion, he had felt such an unbearable pressure of love for God and he simply couldn't articulate it that he took a penknife and he carved the name of Jesus on his chest. Now, that was enough to frighten off the good fathers of the vice postulate or was, or whoever was doing it. That put the kibosh on it. Frank O'Connor called the Ireland of the time Lilliput, the kingdom of little men. I don't know that that was fair, but I do know that we have a huge danger. We cannot handle greatness. We try to pull it down. We are terrified by those who take God at his word, like Pierce. We are terrified by those who truly believe. Even the saints just about get past us. I don't know why Willie Doyle was blamed for that. Indeed, Alfred O'Reilly, in his classic biography, he notes that a Dominican, I don't think he's a saint, he's blessed, maybe for the same reason, had done similar things. That, you know, these extremes sometimes happen, particularly in the early life of a saint. Willie Doyle would die as a young man. He was killed by a shell in France after an amazing apostle. Philip Neri in the catacombs before he was a priest a ball of fire entered his mouth during his meditations and lodged in his heart a tumor appeared on the outside of his body not painful not malignant and only when he died and they opened his body did they discover that his heart had massively enlarged at some stage and had actually broken two of the ribs and he had to live with that for the rest of his long life his long long life for the time a 16th century saint early 17th century, he lived into his 80s. Only a minority would have lived that long in those days. This is a God you'll explode if you come too close to him, with love. That's why I suppose in fairness, in fairness, in fairness, the church has to be very, very careful about those she canonizes, she raises to the altars, given that we know there are far more saints than are ever recognized and more, probably more demons too, but there we go. We won't, we won't go into that. Charity. We need a doctor. We needed a doctor to cure us. The love with which he will cure us may kill us, but we will die of love. One way or another we're going to die because we're dying from the moment we're born. To be human is to be ill. I'm going to say that again. To be human is to be ill. Mortal comes from the Latin word mars, meaning death. We are the dying. Death defines our lives. It defines us. I'm not being morbid. I'm being realistic. Now, you see how we need Christ the healer? Christ the resurrector? The one who doesn't just indulge in fine words and airy sentiments and phrases, but comes into a life and lays hands on you and cures you. He lifted up the mother who had the fever. He raised her. The Greek is, I think, a gyrine. I think is the same verb that's used when he raised from the dead. He raised her from sickness. He cured the fever. He rebuked the fever. He took it away. The evil that was in her. Like COVID is evil. You know it's evil. So don't laugh at me because you know it's evil. You know that anything that terrifies and hurts like that is evil. It is evil. It may not be a moral evil. Well, it might be. We don't know where it came from for certain. I'm not going to go on about conspiracies or anything, but my understanding is the jury's out on that stuff. 
as to whether it came out of a lab, you know. As human, human, that's us. That's us. If we don't wipe ourselves out, we'll be doing well. This is the need of the healer. Okay, I'm going to draw this together. And I'm going to draw it together by going back to the first reading today. Because there's a silent killer among us. And it is the killer of unbelief. It is the killer of ennui. The killer of that illness of the soul. Diagnosed by the French existentialists. And before that by Kierkegaard. By the existentialists. It is the, the death of the soul. Along with the death of God. As Nietzsche talked about. The zombie land of Western Europe. Extreme language, the Pope has used more extreme language. For all the credit he gets for it, the Pope has preached like a Jeremiah on the subject of faith in Western Europe. And he, he doesn't hide his contempt. He doesn't hide his contempt. There is a malady, a canker on us. And we need to be healed from that. And I'm going to say something else. It's not new. There are no new heresies. And this isn't new either. Look at the book of Job. Just look at that. I go back here to the first reading. I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to give you a dose of Job, just to ruin your evening. Job began to speak. Is not man's life on earth nothing more than pressed service? His time no better than hired drudgery? Like the slave, sighing for the shade. Or the workman, with no thought but his wages. Months of delusion I have assigned to me. Nothing for my own but nights of grief. Lying in bed I wonder, when will it be day? Risen, I think, how slowly evening comes. Restlessly I fret till twilight falls. Swifter than a weaver's shuttle my days have passed and vanished, leaving no hope behind. Remember that my life is but a breath and that my eyes will never again see joy. That's a great reading. The wisdom literature in the Bible is fantastic and it's one of the many acts of charity of the deity to humanity that God includes in the canon of inspired scripture has caused to be included this profoundly human near despair, this angst, as we would call it now, this mental, spiritual suffering. And it's there in the inspired text. So the Bible is a library, not a book. It's a library. And it is a hundred thousand conversations with God. God speaks to us through the human author. The text is inspired. God speaks to us through the scripture and God speaks through us back to God. I know the theologians are getting ready to burn me at the stake. You know, you could hear two men in the pub over a pint talking like this. This is fantastic stuff. I mean, this is, what is it? It must be about nearly 3,000 years old. All right, maybe not in the written form, Two and a half thousand years old, I can't remember now, but certainly, I mean, you see, an awful lot of the scriptures are uh, had oral forms before they were written down, so you just can't be sure. This is an ancient text, and it's talking directly to us. I mean, that's straight out of, oh, okay, I'm going to be really pretentious now. That's straight out of Kafka. And yes, I have read a bit of, a bit of Kafka, okay, I've read him in English. Franz Kafka, who wrote that dystopian novel, um, The Trial, and in his short stories, Metamorphosis, the guy who wakes up and he's been transformed into a beetle. The Burrow, it was all about hopelessness and people trapped in things that were bigger than them and pointlessness, bureaucracy, oppression, tyranny. It's a very bleak image, Kafka's image. Or it's out of Sartre, the French philosopher, who wrote a novel called simply La Nausée, in English, nausea. 
it's like somebody with the vomits, but it's a spiritual vomit. It's a spiritual nausea. It's just worn out by life, just worn out by the lack of point, the lack of a future, everything. And that's affecting Job. You have to remember the early Jews, for the most part, did not believe in an afterlife. That's very shocking for us to realize. Even by the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, when there was widespread belief in an afterlife, some Jews did not believe in an afterlife. Some very influential ones, the Sadducees, for example, the temple priests, you were rewarded in this life and that was that, or you were punished in this life. Now, the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife and many others, many others, okay? You'd have to go to a decent scripture scholar as opposed to a hedge schoolmaster like me uh, to know more about that, but that much I'm sure of. And Job here is, I mean, everything has been taken away from him. The blessings of God were material. He had all this stuff, all this bling that God had given him. And now it's been taken away. And what's before him now but, but death and shoal, the shadow existence that the Jews held in common with most of the ancient peoples. The Jews were exceptional in their belief in one God, but unexceptional in their eschatological beliefs, their beliefs in the last things, their beliefs in what happened to you after death. That was quite common right through the ancient world. The Greeks had the same view. People went as a, it was a miserable existence as a shadow, as a shade in Hades or Shoal, as the Jews called it. And he sees nothing ahead of him. So this, this is the malady of so many modern people. And I've heard it in the conversation of people. I've heard it in the conversation of people you'd be surprised at. I've heard it in the conversation of people very much in the older generation. It doesn't matter how much faith you have, you can have awful periods of doubt and near despair. Therese of Lisieux, and this may make you feel better, suffered the agonies of the damned for about 18 months before her death feeling desolation, no point, that there was no God, that God was there but had no interest in or whatever. You know, just total darkness and abandonment. And then at the end, consolation. So you can feel in this Job's broken heart. Our time is broken hearted. Many of you listening to this are broken hearted. You're broken hearted. You've been hurt in love. You've been hurt in betrayal. You've been betrayed, a friend has betrayed you, or you've betrayed somebody, and in doing so betrayed yourself. And now you don't even see the same person when you look in the mirror in the morning because you can't forget what you did. And here's the way human psychology can often work. We find it difficult to forgive those whom we have betrayed. I mean, we could go into that another time. There are so many hurt and wounded people out there. I seem to be meeting people every second day who are in second relationships, whose marriages are gone. There's quite a bit of it out there. We need Jesus the healer. We need to be healed. And this is where I have sympathy with the charismatic renewal. I see Father Mark Goring on, I think he was talking to Matt Frad there on, on YouTube. I really enjoyed him. And, and he was calling for a new tradismatic approach. So that in, instead of merely trad cats, or charismatic cats, you'd have tradismatic cats, or tradiscadmatics, I don't know. You come up with something. It's a very interesting idea. I, I've heard of other people talking about the same thing, of we need what the council intended. We need a traditional Catholicism, but informed by the new appreciations of the ancient teachings, by the new depths we have perceived to the tradition, informed by the Spirit as the Spirit has moved in the Church. 
rather than by the selfish self-images of theologians or liturgy experts who have damn nearly wrecked the ship, you know? They've certainly contributed to it. We need that. We need to feel grace in our lives. We need to feel it affect our whole bodies. I have great sympathy with this. And I say it myself as a, as a broken person, you know, as somebody who has had his troubles. Like, I, you know, I get down sometimes. I worry a lot. I've always been a worrier. You know, I have my own crosses. And I'm not saying that out of pity. I'm just saying it. I'm, I'm trying to establish a bit of cred here with you. I remember working in a bar in England as a student back in the day, back in the mid-80s in a, in a pub called the Warwick Castle on, it was on the Portobello Road, I think, Notting Hill. But I remember saying he was a bluff Englishman who came in, lovely man, came in for his pint. And I was a very nervous young barman. And uh, I called him sir, as we were told to do by the governor. You know, I called him sir. And he slapped his money down on the counter, looked me straight in the eye, and he said, you don't call me sir, lad, he said. You call me by my name. I work for a living like you. And I thought it was a lovely thing to say to a young barman. I thought it really was, uh, it was a lovely thing. It made me feel very important, and it gave me great courage. He was a very charismatic guy, like he was a real, he was a tough man. And I suppose I'm trying to show you that, spiritually speaking, I work for a living like you. I pay my dues. Everyone does. We all suffer. We're all broken. The Holy Father has talked about this. Personally, he has said he's had to go for counselling and all the rest of it. We are broken and suffering and we need to be healed. And this is Christ the healer. And Christ the healer comes to heal us in body. He comes to heal us in spirit. He comes to heal us in psyche, in our minds. And he comes to heal our very souls. And now I'm going to say something else. Here I am finally managing. You know, I think I may have spotted a, a clearing in the jungle where, in which I can land. This is very dangerous. You're never more vulnerable than when you need a, a healer. Generally, you're either sick or you've realised at last that you're sick. You're very vulnerable. And a church is very vulnerable when it, in general, needs healing. And the church needs healing. And a society is very vulnerable. I can't remember which historian it was that said it that in the 1930s and 20s and 30s that it was not what was crucial to the rise of Hitler. Or one of the things crucial was that the Germans were not looking simply for a leader. They were not looking simply for a manager. They were not looking simply for somebody who would get them out of trouble. They were looking for a highland. I think that's the German word he used. A highland, a faith healer. They were looking for somebody who would heal them body and soul. The Antichrist, when he comes, will be beautiful. He will have the chilly, cold beauty of true evil. And Hitler, for many people, seemed beautiful. One woman said that, that she thought he was beautiful. He looked straight into her eyes. He looked into her soul. He could do that. He could make you feel you were very important. It's an old trick, but he was very good at it. I want to be healed by the true doctor and teacher and healer who will look into my very soul and not hurt me, not manipulate me, not make a nomadon, a fool of me, but heal me. And that's what you want too. That's what you want too. You know the things that are afflicting you are evil. Your inferiority complex, perhaps abuse when you were young, perhaps a great tragedy, perhaps a great loss, perhaps a great weight you have on your conscience. 
Perhaps you betrayed your wife or husband. Perhaps you betrayed a friend. Perhaps you stole something. Whatever it was, oh, there's suffering out there. And this is the Christ I need. It's the Christ you need. The true and reliable healer. And it's right there in the book of Job. And it's there in modern novels. The German people were brokenhearted when they went to Hitler on the rebound. It's well known that a man or a woman who've been terribly wounded in love can make a disastrous second choice on the rebound. That's well known. It's a serious problem. You do it to stop the pain. You'll do anything to stop the pain. You can make a very serious mistake. And the great danger is that we in the church will turn to false prophets. The great danger is that a whole society, sooner or later the Antichrist will come, who knows, tomorrow or in a thousand years. But we've seen in the 20th century a few who were very persuasive forerunners, you know. It is so dangerous. We turn again to our prayers. We turn again to the teachings of the church. We let ourselves be guided by the church. And we beg to be healed. Listen to me. God will not refuse the Holy Spirit if you ask for it. He will not refuse you. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to heal you. Miracles happen all the time. Far more than we think. More than can ever be proved. Miracles happen. And terrible things happen for which nobody will ever be convicted. Our human abilities to establish the truth of things is limited. Turn to God now. Turn to him. Why carry your burden forever? Turn to this God, this therapist who moves between the beds, as the Pope would say, this field hospital we're in, and who wants to heal you. Only he knows your medical history. Only God knows you. Only God knows you. God made you. God loves you. And only God can heal you. May God bring his healing into your heart and into your home tonight and for the coming week. And may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>